Lord, we're every day just filled with the sense of the greatness of your majesty and splendor. The fact that we live at a time and in a place where we can recognize what you have done down through the course of history. And even though we're not able to see into the future, we are able to trust the one who is in control of the future. And you have certainly given us at least glimpses into the events to come. And Lord, we're so delighted with what we see, especially as we uh, look at the end of the book of Revelation and we see the new Jerusalem and the kingdom of heaven and all of that. And we really look forward to that with great anticipation. In the meantime, Lord, you've put us here in a, in a difficult situation in this world where the enemy seems to have his way so much of the time. But we know, Lord, that you are sovereign even in all these uh, terrible things that seem to happen. Uh, hardly a day seems to go by without some tragedy uh, being reported. And yet, Father, we know that the loving God is still in control. And Father, we choose to submit to you today. We choose to trust you to speak to us through your word. We choose to agree together that your spirit will be at work here and in every class this morning and in the service, which is transpiring at this hour also. And for those of our, <clears throat> of our company here who are away, that you will minister to them and grant safety. We thank you for your love and grace. In Christ's name, amen. If you will turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, I'd like to read beginning at verse 21. Exodus 12, 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it <clears throat> into the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two uh, doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, that you shall observe this rite. And it will come about when your children will say to you, what does this rite mean to you? That you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Much of this passage, of course, is uh, simply the actual implementing of what had already been spoken of before and what Moses had proclaimed was to happen because the word had been given to him by God. Now what is very interesting here is the fact in verse 23. The question about this is, when you read the passage of the Passover, you will discover that it says, it talks about an angel, and it talks about the Lord himself. 
Throughout the Old Testament, you have the picture of the angel of the Lord, with a capital A for angel. And that is almost always interpreted as a theophany, uh, a manifestation of God. And it can be a theophany in the sense of the pre-incarnate Christ or of Yahweh himself. The particular passage we're looking at here in verse 23 says that the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses. And some will say, well, the destroyer in Scripture is Satan. Well, in the Old Testament, the word destroyer is not used for Satan. Uh, in the New Testament, it talks about Abaddon, and that's referred to as the destroyer. But let, let me just uh, read a passage to you from Psalm 78. Psalm 78, uh, beginning at verse 49, which refers back to this event. Psalm 78, 49. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels, he leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague. And he smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility, in the tents of Ham, that is, of Misraim. The Lord was in charge of all that took place here. The Lord is responsible for the, the course of history in that he superintends all that takes place. And yet the actual action of bringing death into the homes of the Egyptians was carried out by angels who had been so ordered by God to do so. There is no scriptural support to the idea that these were evil angels or that Satan himself was personally involved at all. That God had somehow, you know, pulled their chain and, and forced them to do the action. It is a, an act of judgment and God is the author of judgment, not Satan. And so God, through his angelic forces, brings about the event against the Egyptians that the Israelites will commemorate as the Passover because that the angel will not touch the houses or the homes of the Israelites, but only those of the Egyptians. In the 26th verse of this passage in Exodus 12, we read that one of the most important reasons for the annual repetition, I mean, God commanded them that every year at this time, they were to go through the Passover celebration again. They were to sacrifice the lamb. They were to have the matzos, the unleavened bread. They were to have the bitter herbs. And they were to pray and to sing as they had. This was to be repeated every year at the same moment. At sundown on the 14th of Nisan, Nisan. and, and uh, as the day progressed into the 15th of Nisan, they were to carry out this particular event. And the reason was that the future generations of Israelites who will be born and raised long after this event has occurred will be reminded of the true meaning of this event. Because God wanted every single Israelite, whenever that person was born in the history of that nation, to realize that they personally owed allegiance to God and that they personally had to take ownership of all the history of Israel.
It was the history of their people, of what God had done for them as a nation. And although they may not have lived at the time the actual event transpired, it was part of their past. It was part of creating who they were individually and corporately as a nation. They were to understand that by God's grace, they were personally to have a relationship with Him. They couldn't just trust in the fact that, oh, I'm an Israelite, and therefore it's all okay. And as Jesus uh, said, God's able to raise up <laughs> children, of Israel, children of Abraham from the very rocks. So it didn't do you any good just to be a, a child of Abraham. That isn't going to save you. But it has to come through personal ownership of the God of Israel. And therefore they were responsible to live before God as he had commanded them to do. What's interesting here is the response of the people. When Moses gives this message, what do the people do? Scripture tells us that they bowed on their faces before the Lord, indicating submission to his will. There are a lot of things that we do in our services to honor the Lord, but generally speaking, that's not one of them, at least not the way it's demonstrated here. The scriptural word here means that they prostrated themselves before God. Uh, we may do that at home privately, and I suppose that's probably the best way to do it. It's not very decorous often to do so in a public gathering, but uh, that's what the children of Israel did at this point. Now, verse 28 of this passage is a very, very important verse. It says that the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. The theme of Scripture, over and over again, is trust and obey. Trust and obey. If we don't learn anything else, we must learn to trust and to obey. This verse expresses the greatest truth of Exodus, the greatest truth of all Scripture. It's vital to every believer throughout history. They did exactly as God had commanded them to do. They didn't turn from the, to the right hand or to the left. They didn't question. They didn't modify. They didn't say, okay, but God first. They simply obeyed. And that is the key teaching of Scripture. It's the test of true discipleship. Submission to the Word of God. You and I, every day, fail. You and I, every day, sin. There are things which we allow into our lives that, as believers, ought not to be there. But if our attitude is that we accept the absolute sovereignty of the Word of God in our lives, and we acknowledge our sin, then we are doing what God wants us to do. And our sin is under the blood and has been forgiven by God. The Bible must be the absolute authority in our lives. Nothing else but the Bible. Not the church as a denomination. Not the preacher as a person. But the Word of God. Because the Word of God is the very expression of God. It's who He is that comes to us. Jesus himself drove this point home very, very powerfully in the Gospel of John, verse 14, chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. We read these words. Verse 21, 
He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. People have uh, been kicking around over the last many, many years now, this whole idea of the Lordship of Christ. And, and there are those who argue that all you have to do at some point in time is, is uh, confess your sins and, and accept Jesus as Savior, and then you're in, you're going to be going to heaven no matter how you live your life from that point on. And then there are others who say, ah, oh, but the minute you make a mistake, you're going to hell again. Well, you know, neither of those extremes is biblical. The scripture makes it very clear that if we confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that he has been raised from the dead, we will be saved. But if we are saved, we demonstrate the reality of that by what Jesus says here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that means that we don't say, okay, well, it says this, but, you know, in our society, we can't really do it that way because God didn't really understand our society. And so we modify it and say it's okay, you know, to do something different from what the Word says. That's what Jesus said. If God didn't understand our society, God didn't understand anything. God is almighty, all-sovereign. God is all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. Our society is, is probably pretty stupid in his eyes in most of what we believe and what we do as, as human beings aside from uh, what the scripture teaches. And he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You know, for, for us, if we profess our great love for him and then go out and deliberately, constantly disobey his word, uh, our words are empty, right? I mean, our love is meaningless. It's not really there. It's not a love. We don't love him if that's the case. And that's why... You know, we have this um, situation where somebody seems to come to the Lord and get saved and goes out and lives like the devil uh, afterwards, and, and we, we're kind of caught here now. Why is this person doing this? Well, you know, the, the greatest reason probably is that there was not a real transaction there, that, that, that the new birth did not occur, that that was just an emotional experience for that person. Now, I'm not saying that when people get saved, they don't go out and sin. We all do every day, right? We all know that. But the basic desire of our heart is to be obedient, I hope. I fail, but I, you know, it's not because I, I love it and I want to go out and do it more and more and more. You know, I, I, I am smitten in my spirit when I fail. And I don't want to do that. I want to obey, but my flesh is weak. You know, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Not that we use that for an excuse. It just is a reality. And so we, we need to, I think, as, as believers, really make sure that the Word of God is deep in our hearts, that it's the basis of everything that we do, and that we use it to judge everything. We don't judge our life by what other believers do or what the church's, that particular don, denomination's theology is because some theology is not biblical, but what God's Word actually says. We've got to love God's Word. Because if we love his word, we love him. Because his word is the expression of who he is. So the children of Israel did exactly as they were told. 
Will they continue to always do exactly as they're told? Absolutely not, right? We, when we start talking about them out in the wilderness, they start belly aching about the food and there is no water and they want to go back and eat the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. And at one point, God said to Moses, step aside, I'm going to burn them all up. But God didn't. And God didn't because he put it in the heart of Moses to intercede. Moses didn't intercede because he loved those people so desperately that he loved them more than God did. There's no way he could do that. God put that love in his heart. God gave him the desire to intercede, and therefore he did what God really wanted him to do. God wasn't intending to incinerate the children of Israel. Because through them would come the Messiah. Back to the 12th chapter of Exodus, uh, reading at verse 29. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night, and he said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, not, not money. <laughs> they took that too. This is uh, the flour. Before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they, may, so, uh, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. God, of course, did exactly as he had prophesied through Moses that he would do. Absolutely everything God said was carried out to the letter. Because when God proclaims that something will be done, there is nothing in heaven or earth that can stop God from carrying out his plan. The instructions concerning the Passover sacrifice were given to Israel. There is absolutely no indication that that word was given to the Egyptians that the Egyptians were warned or that the Egyptians were told about the Passover sacrifice. Thus, the death angel struck. And about midnight, virtually no Egyptian home was left untouched. Question. Yes, sir. At, at what level would this uh, have hit the families? Would not perhaps Pharaoh himself have been a first son? It didn't cover that level? No. The possibility is, of course, that Pharaoh might have been the first son because normally the eldest son is the heir apparent. But in ancient Egypt, there was such a high level of loss of life uh, because of disease. In mummies that they have dug up, they have discovered that some of the pharaohs died at what they estimated were like 30 years of age, you know, 40 years of age. Uh, they have discovered in the cadavers, they have found evidences of all kinds of weird diseases. 
So it's, it's possible that he was not the firstborn or that God chose to exempt him because he was in charge and he was the one God was dealing with. Other than that, we can't know. There isn't any other explanation. No, none that I find in Scripture. Yeah. Which does mean that, of course, there, there might be a home here or there, but the Scripture seems to indicate even to say in this passage that someone was dead in virtually every home. Of course, we have to realize we're talking about fairly large families here. And, of course, then of the animals also. One of the truths that comes through here is that God is no respecter of persons. God is not impressed because Pharaoh is Pharaoh. God is not impressed because this is you know, the Lord High Chancellor of the realm over here, or here, here's the Secretary of State, you know. Uh, God is not impressed by any of that. Fame, wealth, fortune means nothing to God at all. And that's really hard for us always to, to realize or to remember because we live in a world where fame and fortune and, and power are highly respected. And, and the people with that historically down through time have always lorded it over everybody else. And of course we live in a strange time in history when people are given fame and fortune and power who have not earned it by political power. They've earned it because they can play very loudly on a guitar and yodel into the microphone, you know, or something. Or they can throw a football or they can hit a baseball or something like that and, and they earn fame and fortune for what most down through history would consider to be rather ridiculous <laughs> reasons. Not that it, other societies haven't had their equivalence. But um, God is not impressed. You no, know, God doesn't care who's the Cy Young winner as far as, you know, eternity is concerned. You don't get an extra crown in heaven or get to carry your little uh, sign Cy Young for the rest of eternity. If you're not a believer, you won't even be there to carry it around. <laughs> that is heaven. But what God does respect and what God does honor is faith and obedience. Faith and obedience God honors. Faith and obedience God respects. If we trust and obey, we, we have the respect of God Almighty. But for no other reason. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 again sometime. You know? Even if you give your body to be burned, it means nothing unless love is at the root of it all. Many consider David to have been Israel's greatest king. And David recognized this truth many years later. And God had saved him from many, many enemies. David, of course, as you know, was chased around by Saul for a long time uh, from, from cave to cave out in the wilderness of Judea. And then later on, David was to experience uh, more than one coup against his power, attempted coup. And yet in it all, God preserved him. And in response, he, he wrote a psalm which is actually found in 2 Chronicles, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel, chapter 22, which applies not only to David's situation, but to this very situation we're talking about as far as Israel is concerned, and it applies to your life and my life every day. I'd like to read a portion of that from the 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel. David has just experienced two attempted coups. Uh, against his power as king. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the, door, the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 
And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. Thou dost save me from violence. I mean, is this guy glad? Is this guy happy for what God has done? Verse 4, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And you could put the word only in there if you would choose. Who is only worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry for help came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. And smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He, bow, uh, bowed, he bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He appeared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, a mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice. He sent arrows, sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea appeared. Foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. Now, there's a lot of poetic uh, statement in, in this. I mean, you can't picture God as a fire-breathing dragon, certainly. But in the poetry, he is simply talking about the awesome power of God. And we, our culture today, especially our youth culture, use, wears out the word awesome. And I've mentioned this before. There is only one awesome being, and that's God. Nothing else is awesome. Only God is awesome. <laughs> no football player is awesome. You know, no baseball player is awesome. Nothing is awesome. Because only God can really inspire awe in people. And this God is there to rescue David. He rescues Israel from Egypt, and he rescues you, and he rescues me. When you pray your prayer, you may not feel the earth shake because God is angry at the enemies of our soul. But you have every right to picture that in your mind, if you will. Because God hears our prayers. And even though it doesn't seem sometimes that the answer is right there, God never turns away the prayers of his people. Prayed in faith and obedience, all those prayers count. And God collects them. And when it's his timing, he acts. 
How many prayers were prayed in Israel before they were, le were released? They were there for 400 years. Can you imagine? Your great-grandparents, your grandparents, your parents, you, your children, they're all praying for release. The day comes. But the grandparents, the great-grandparents didn't see the day. The parents didn't see the day. But when the Lord's hour came, those people experienced it. Were all those people who experienced experience God's deliverance, great prayer warriors? No. A lot of them probably didn't give God much of the time of day. But when God displayed His awesome power and Moses and Aaron led the people, we're told in the Scripture that they all obeyed exactly the Word of God. For whatever reason, they did it. And God delivered His people. God delivered David because He delighted in him. God delivered Israel because he delighted in them. God delivers you and he delivers you and me because he delights in us. Now, as you read the story of Israel, you might not find them very delightful much of the time. And you may not feel very delightful much of the time. But nevertheless, God delighted in Israel just as he delights in us. He delights in us even when we have failed. Because our hearts are turned towards Him. When we ask the question, why? Why does God delight in us? Because often we don't delight in ourselves. Why does He deliver us? Is there a scriptural answer? Yeah, there is. It's not terribly satisfying for those of us who live in the Greco-Roman world who want to know the analysis of everything. We want to know exactly why this happened and who thought what and what the input was so we can come up with one plus one plus one and come up with the answer, you know. But let me read to you just a phrase from 2 Timothy chapter 1. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And that's all the answer we're going to get. He loves us and delights in us because He has so chosen to do. And it isn't because we have done anything to make ourselves delightful. Because our best effort is trash in the eyes of God. Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not even one. Not even Billy Graham. Go back through the pages of history. Was Abraham totally delightful? I mean, he acted like a jerk on more than one occasion. But about Moses, same thing. Must I bring rock, water from this rock for you? <laughs> Who's Moses? God? Well, he was acting like it at that moment. No. None has by his or her own actions been delightful. But we're delightful because God has so chosen to delight in us. It's like love. Yesterday at the wedding, um, Mark Swanson was doing the wedding and, and he emphasized the truth. He says, love is a choice. It's not a feeling, not an emotion, not just warm fuzzy we have for each other. It's a choice. We choose to love. And we express that love by what we do for that other person and how we care for that other person and our relationship with that other person. It's a choice. It's not just a feeling. 
God chose to love us, not because he had any warm fuzzies towards us, because <laughs> I'm afraid we all be long lost if they, we had to depend on that. I would dare to say there are a few people in the world today who would like to think that God delighted in them because they were delightful. But they haven't looked in the mirror of God's word if they think that. Because we often don't even analyze our own motives. Why we do what we do. Why do I do this? If you look down deep in the heart, sometimes it's because I'm prideful. It's because I want others to think well of me. It's not really because I'm trying to serve God. And that's what he's trying to work at, chip at all the time, keep chipping away. I've, I've used this analogy before. It's kind of like God is, a, is the world's greatest Michelangelo. Michelangelo had a, had a talent that is virtually unequaled in the history of the world. To take a big block of, of, grant, of uh, marble and to carve an exquisite lifelike statue out of that thing. I mean, I can't even imagine how you could do that. Click, 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 click. And turn out, you know, you probably have all seen, if not in reality, uh, the, the pictures of Michelangelo's David. And when you look at that, uh, the face of that, it's just absolutely beyond belief how a person could put such expression in that cold marble as Michelangelo did. But, but God isn't even as, uh, obviously he's not frail and failing like Michelangelo as a human being. But God is chipping away at us. And he's chipping and chipping and chipping and trying to create in us the image of his own son. We were created originally in his image and, you know, the imago Dei. And that's what he's at work doing now. He's trying to bring that to reality in this life to the degree that it's possible. Of course, with God, all things are possible, but we've already been told we're in the sinful flesh. And we will not reach perfection until we cross Chile Jordan at that final hour. We're told in this passage in Exodus 12 that Pharaoh arose in the night, probably awakened by the outcry that was coming across the great city of Memphis, as people were discovering all night long that, that there, was there were dead people in their household, that the firstborn had died, and he found his own son dead, the heir apparent to the throne, probably dead. And the scripture said there was no home where there was not someone dead. And we'd say, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart touched every home in Egypt. There wasn't a home in Egypt where there was not death that could, at least humanly speaking, be credited back to Pharaoh's refusal to listen to the words of Almighty God and to yield to him. But of course, we know beyond that, it was the judgment of God on a pagan land, on a people totally committed to gods who were not gods. And so God judged the nation of Egypt. How many were dead? Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Well, we don't even know what the population of Egypt was in those days. I, I would suspect the number was probably in the tens of thousands, given the size of the nation of Israel and how that impacted the uh, nation of Egypt. That would probably be more or less the magnitude. Well, Pharaoh had had enough. And so in the middle of the night, he sends for Moses and Aaron. Come! And they come. And he says, take every person 
and every animal and go worship the Lord and get out of here. And by the way, bless me also. The Egyptians, as a people, couldn't wait to get Israel out of their country. They were frightened to death because, as we read at the end of verse 33, they were afraid they would all be dead before this was over. I mean, it was getting worse and worse with every plague. And, and now there was death in every household. What would be the next step if Israel didn't leave? The annihilation of the entire country? That's what they were afraid of. Now, they had already heaped their gold and their silver and their clothing on the Israelites. As the Israelites had, had come to them, God had said, go to your neighbor and ask them for gold and silver and clothing. Don't steal it. Ask them for it. And they gave it to them. As Scripture says, God gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians gave them gold. The Egyptians gave them silver. And the Egyptians gave them clothing. And I can just imagine here, that as the Israelites are starting to go, the Egyptians are running out and giving them more. Please, take it and go. Now, the scripture says at the end of the passage we read that thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, the word plunders is a pretty strong word. Because if I think of the word plunder, and I read about the Visigoths and the Vandals and other tribes down through history, Attila the Hun and his group, and I think of plunder... You know, all kinds of bad thoughts go along with that. But this is not a plunder in that sense. The children of Israel have, have done no violence to any Egyptian. They did not steal it. They didn't strong arm it. They simply asked it, and God put in their hearts to give it to them. And thus they took gold and silver and textiles out of the land. Why did God do this? Because God is a God of justice. And they had served as slaves in this country for 400 years nearly. I mean, they'd been there more than 400 years, and they'd been in slavery for the better part of that, probably. They had earned it. It was theirs. It was their due for all of those generations that had served as slaves in Egypt. And where would that wealth end up? Where would it end up? Well, as we get further ahead in the book of Exodus, we discover it ends up in the tabernacle of God. Because God, through Moses, said, bring your gold and bring your silver and bring your fine textiles and we'll use this to make the temple of the Lord, the, the, the tabernacle of the Lord. And so most of what they carried off was then put into this tabernacle there in the wilderness. So we could really, I, I think, justifiably say that the tabernacle in the wilderness was built with the blood, the sweat, and the tears of a dozen generations of Israelis who had lived and died in Egypt. It was a very, very costly building in that sense. David, many, many years later, when he wanted to obtain the site where the temple of God would be built. There was a man who was not even an Israelite who said to David, I will give you the land and I will give you the oxen to sacrifice the oxen to your God. And David said, no, I will not give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. And so the Israelites gave 
of hundreds of years of blood, sweat, and tears to build the tabernacle of the Lord there in the wilderness. What this is is a picture in miniature of the great cost that God was sustained in saving us and sending his son to die. The greatest cost that can be imagined in the universe. The death of all those who have died throughout history does not even begin to approach the great tragedy and the great cost of the death of the Son of God on our behalf. And it isn't just the nails that were pounded into his hand and, and, and the fact that his, his life expired there on a cross. It was because he bore on the cross the sin of all mankind throughout all of history. And because that sin came upon him, God had to turn his back and Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the most horrendous moment in the history of eternity where the Son of God carries the sin of the world and faces the judgment of God so that you and I will not have to face that judgment. There's no event in all of eternity that we can even imagine that it comes to the magnitude of that event or the importance of it or the cost of it. He did this so that one day in the New Jerusalem, as we read in Revelation 21, he shall therefore dwell among men, and they shall be his people, and he himself shall be among them. And the word there is tabernacle among them. As he was in the tabernacle in the wilderness, so he will be with us throughout all eternity. To the point that Scripture teaches us there's no need for the sun or the moon. For the Lord God is the light for all of us, for all eternity. It's hard for us, especially those of you who are scientifically oriented, and, and you know that light is, is one little section of the, of the whole electromagnetic spectrum, and it comes from certain radiations that, you know, the wavelengths that come out and impact our retina and all this kind of stuff, to, to understand that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, and it doesn't have to be some source of radiation to produce light. God just says, there is, and there is. And there doesn't have to be a sun or a moon or a light bulb or anything else. In the 12th chapter of Exodus, at verse 37, we read, Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. And a mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. And they baked the dough for which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread. For they had not become leavened since they were again out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The Israelites were entering on a new and momentous era in their history. I, I don't think you and I can even portray this, hardly can even conceive of this. I mean, we've all picked up and left someplace and moved somewhere else, right? You got all the stuff finally into the truck door and got it shut. And you move off to another place and then you got to unload all that stuff too, you know? And you got to clean houses at both ends. And, but that isn't even compared to this. Because we're talking about a people who are leaving an era of history to go into a new era of history. We're not talking about people who leave Southern California to go to Northern California or, or, or leaving Pennsylvania to come to California or whatever. Um, we're talking about a people who are leaving Egypt, symbolic of the world, a place where they were in absolute slavery, 
to go to the promised land where they would have freedom. Not only physical freedom, but spiritual freedom to serve God. It is absolutely almost beyond our comprehension to, to understand the meaning of the moment. Now, that's not to say all these Israelites, as they were starting to tramp off into the wilderness, had all these thoughts. You know, for them, it's one foot in front of the other as you go up into the wilderness, and when do I eat next, and I'm, I'm hungry. All the things, you know, that are normal things. But as we look back at this, we see this great door swinging open to a totally new era in the lives of these people and for the whole nation of Israel. They had been through the crucible of the generation of the nation. They had come in 70 in number. They're leading two million strong. They had become the nation of Israel in this land. And now they're going out to, to discover their destiny, if, if you will. And of course, many, many, many centuries are yet to come and go before even Messiah will be born. And then, of course, 2,000 years since that time have passed. The whole crowd, footstep after footstep, of course, some riding probably an animal back, following Moses on a great adventure, some probably moaning and groaning. This is the house my great-grandfather lived in, and my grandfather lived in, and my father lived in, and I lived in. I hate to leave it. Probably some old dirty ramshackle shack, you know, full of lois and all this other stuff. Uh, and yet it's the only home they've known. To, to become nomadic, really. Tent dwellers, if you will. As they move off into the wilderness, but they do so with mixed emotions. Some, of course, were joyful, and the excitement was there of a new adventure. The, they, they had finally discovered the reality of their God and the power of their God, and he'd made a mess out of Egypt. He'd absolutely desecrated all the gods of Egypt. So obviously they're falling a mighty and a powerful God. There was fear and there was anxiety. Certainly there was this. Because they were leaving the known, the familiar, for the unknown and the unfamiliar. You're going to follow this man Moses into the wilderness. Now, you and I probably don't really know what wilderness is like unless you've been in the Sinai. This is not exactly, you know, Caldwell Park. I mean, this is one very, very bleak place. All you have to do is get one of the Landsat photos that have been taken from satellite and looks down on, on the Sinai and, and they take them, you know, in various colors to show where there is vegetation. And there's hardly any vegetation in Sinai at all. And it's just granite rock, you know, and desert and sand, and it's hot. And they're heading into this place. Of course, they don't know all these details yet, because they haven't been very far. Most of them hadn't been more than a half a dozen miles from home, probably, in their entire lives. And now they're going out following this man, Moses. I'm sure some thought, He's a great leader. God's with him. Others thought, yeah, well, but, you know, he may live in the desert, but that doesn't mean we know how to. And so there was more, I think, than a little anxiety. Because to some, the promised land was more mythical than real. Sure, they had heard about it from the patriarchs of the various tribes, but how many hundreds of years have to pass before a place becomes almost more unreal than real? If you've never been there and you've heard about it, great place to go. It's promised to us, but you've never been there. And your grandparents weren't there, and your great-grandparents weren't there. <coughs> it becomes almost a mythical place, and yet now they're on their way. And I think a lot of them were very anxious. 
But they followed. And I guess that's where the rubber meets the road. You and I may be anxious about tomorrow. We may be anxious. Scripture says be anxious for nothing, right? But that doesn't mean we aren't anxious. And the point is, we may have anxiety, but we follow. We follow anyway. Even if there's anxiety, we yet follow. And that's what God honors. And God will meet their anxiety. God will provide for them. God will bless them. God will carry them through because God is faithful. And that's one of the key aspects of the story as we follow Moses' life through. Well, we'll pick up there uh, next week.